Great to be here with you folks. We've been going through Judges. It's not a pleasant book and it gets worse, you'll see. You know, its purpose is manifold, not the least of which is to reveal the nature of humankind and contrast it with the nature of God. So on the human side, we have been seeing repeated rebellion. And then on the the divine side, we have been seeing repeated restoration. So here is the sinfulness of man And here's the grace of God. It's not just collectively about Israel. It applies to us as individual followers of the Lord Jesus as well. Uh, Not a person in here hasn't had times of deliberate rebellion against Almighty God, including me. I don't think that's the real issue. The real issue is how do we respond to it? Do we continue to distance ourselves from God or do we take him up on his offer of superabundant, amazing grace? Do we say, oh God, as with Israel, so too you are with me. They too rebelled and found gracious restoration and I believe I can as well. I was uh, a missionary in uh, Germany a long time ago. And I was with a missions organization and sent there to replace a very godly leader of that organization uh, in, in Germany. And I was quite intimidated when I met him because his reputation preceded him with such a good reputation. He was there for several years and I was coming on board as a new guy. And he invited me to have time with him just to get to know each other, fill me in, give me an orientation. And the conversation was flowing and it was about spiritual things. And in the course of the conversation, I really don't remember the context. I just remember this. He made the statement that in the last several years, he he said he doesn't remember being out of fellowship with God, he said, more than 45 minutes. I was intimidated by this, and I think he could discern from my nonverbals that I just didn't get that. And he said then, as if he could read my thoughts, he said, no, I didn't say I hadn't sinned against God. Uh, He was saying, I just repented of it as quickly as I became convicted of it. And I ran to the throne of grace. And I remember him, this was many years ago to this day. And I see that kind of um, reality depicted in this tough book of Judges. Yes, there is sin, but where sin abounds, God's grace superabounds. And so I, I hope you see this. One of the reasons why God has chosen, uh, the Jews, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is not because of any inherent virtue or greater value in them. It may be the opposite. He simply chose this peculiar people group through whom he could manifest his grace. Listen, if you ever doubt the grace of God, please track his um, transaction with the Jewish people. There's no reason why Jews should be in existence today. We deserve a God's wrath. And uh, instead, we have been recipients of his grace. So if you ever doubt the grace of God, 
or his reliability and faithfulness to his promises, please remember uh, what you're learning about how he responds even to rebellious Israel. So let me tell you what's what's kind of happening, and I'm going to point to this map a little bit. There was a people group called the Ammonites, Ammonites, and they're picking a fight at this point with Israel. And so they are getting together, camped against Israel, and the text of Scripture, we're in Judges 11 tonight, Judges chapter 11, and we're told that Israel encamped at a place called Mizpah. Here it is, we think, somewhere around there. Just to give you a frame of reference, um, on the west of Israel is the Mediterranean Sea, and then there is this southern body of water called the Dead Sea, and then north of it is the Sea of Galilee, and uh, dividing the land from north to south is this squiggly line, you can see it. That's the Jordan River. And so to the east of the Jordan River is modern-day um, Jordan. So over here is Jordan, and if you go north, you get into Syria. And if you go to the west up here, that would be Lebanon. And then down south over here is uh, Egypt, just just to give you a little bit of a frame of reference. So Israel is encamped here at Mizpah. It's an area known as Gilead. This general area is Gilead, and the Ammonites are coming. And it's a rough time because in Israel's history, they don't have a leader to represent them. Uh, and so they're nervous about this whole thing. And so we read in Judges 11, verse 1, this. <clears throat> uh, now, Jephthah. Jephthah. So Jephthah is the next judge we're going to read something about. Remember I mentioned the judges can be thought of as little saviors. They're not the ultimate savior, uh, but they point to him. They typify him. God mercifully raised up people, judges, to deliver Israel, even though Israel had rebelled. So the next one we'll read about tonight is Jephthah. He's a Gileadite. So that means he came from Gilead, which is an area east of the Jordan River, and it would be in present-day Jordan. He was a valiant warrior, but he was the son of a harlot. And notice, Gilead was the father of Jephthah. So this is a little peculiar. I don't know what to make of it. He came from Gilead, and his father's name was Gilead. That's just the way it is. What really ought to get our attention is this. He was the son of a harlot. Think about it, folks. His mother was a prostitute, which means his father visited prostitutes. This was a time, remember, when everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So he visited a, a prostitute. She birthed a baby. She called his name Jephthah. And so he got off to a bad start. He was illegitimate. Uh, can you imagine what it must have been like for this one to grow up as a young child? He... Uh, he was a disadvantaged young child, to say the least, and yet 
he became a valiant warrior. He was the son of a harlot, and he grew to be a valiant warrior. Which leads me to this. Folks, even the most unwanted child, even the most unwanted baby, has potential in the eyes of Almighty God. And therefore, for us to think we have the authority and prerogative of terminating the life even of an unwanted child in pregnancy is a terrible thing because that one disadvantaged and maybe about to be birthed under less than ideal circumstances, still that one may grow by the grace of God to be a valiant warrior. Jephthah of all people you'll see soon will become the savior, the deliverer of Israel. What if his life was snuffed out in the womb? Can I make a statement which will sound political, and it is. By the way, I think it's a very artificial a distinction to make between um, what is biblical and what is political. As if to say we ought to stick to the Bible and stay out of politics. I don't get it. Uh, it seems to me the truth of Scripture is to inform every area of our life. Our relationships, the way we handle money, our sexuality, and who we vote for. Now, we're not allowed to tell you who to vote for, and therefore we will not do that. So I'm not making that statement. I'm only saying this. God is pro-life. God is not in favor of abortion. He's very sympathetic to maybe a young woman who's uh, pregnant and it's not the best time in her life in many, many ways. And he would prefer for this one to go um, full term, birth the baby and maybe offer the baby up for adoption. But that baby may be the next valiant warrior in the formative hands of Almighty God. So I will tell you this. I think there are certain matters that ought to be a litmus test for a voting a Christian. One of the candidates, you can go home tonight and watch him participate in the debate if you're interested in so doing, uh, was flat out asked, would you... Um, appoint anyone, should you be elected president, to the Supreme Court who is uh, anti-abortion, who is pro-life. And he, uh, in, without even thinking too much about it, said, absolutely not. Anyone who has that position would not, in my administration, uh, be appointed to any office. Now, um, I respect him, at least for revealing what his value system is. Uh, that cannot be ours, because it is not God's. He, he doesn't see any child even being birthed on the most uh, disadvantaged circumstances. He doesn't see that we have a right to terminate that life when, in fact... He has an idea of how to realize the potential of that child. Listen, folks, you may come from this kind of disadvantaged background. Thank God that you're here, saved, uh, indwelt by God's Spirit, having been supplied with various gifts with which 
You can serve to the glory of God. Jephthah was born on the most miserable of circumstances, and you'll see in just a second how painful it was for him during his early developmental years, and yet sovereign God was using all things, even the dysfunction of his family, and even his painful beginnings. You'll see in a second how God was using all of it to form him into a valiant warrior. That's what the text says. And so we read now in verse 2 this, Gilead's wife, uh, Jephthah's father, bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, look, they drove Jephthah out. You see, uh, his father, apparently Gilead, after doing the wrong thing, impregnating a woman, not his wife, a prostitute, I suppose then he sought to do the right thing by not abandoning the baby. That's a good thing. And so he uh, brought Jephthah home, seeking to raise him, I suppose, in the best way he could. But he also had a wife, an actual authentic wife, through whom he fathered a number of sons. We don't know how many. And at a certain point, they took action against their sort of pseudo-brother. He's not really one of us. Our mother's not his mother. His mother's a prostitute. We don't even know where she is now. In fact, the longer our brother Jephthah is around, the more we remember the illegitimacy of it all, and the shame he's brought upon our family. And so it's likely when Gilead passed away, they then took the opportunity to drive Jephthah out, saying, you shall not have an inheritance in our father's house. Greed. There would be more of their father's inheritance available for them to divide. And the whole reason is, for you are the son, you see, of another woman. Your mother's not our mother. Uh, uh, folks, don't feel sorry for yourself. Look at this guy's background. Don't disqualify yourself from being molded in the hand of Almighty God for His glory. No matter what it is you struggle with, are ashamed of, no matter what it disadvantages accompanied your developmental years, maybe God sees in you potential you don't even know that you possess at this particular time. Jephthah ought to be your hero. You ought to be encouraged by him. He was a young boy whom nobody wanted. And when the dad was no longer there to protect him, his brothers drove him out. What a sad story. And yet, I hope you see the sovereignty of God through it all. There's no life circumstance that has come your way or mine that evades the sovereignty of God. He can use even the most painful experiences in order to mold you and I and shape us for his glory. And frankly, that's what he is about. So here's what happened. We read now in the next verse, Jephthah fled from his brothers. And he lived in the land of Tob. Tob would be in present-day Syria. So uh, uh, on the east side of the Jordan to the north up there, that's where he left. He left where his brothers were. He just took off. He's, uh, he's marginalized 
And so he was just out there in this place called Tope. And here's what happened. Worthless fellows gathered themselves about him. Why? Well, uh, they felt comfortable with him, I think. Um, um, look how God is using this. Because he was marginalized, marginalized people felt comfortable with him, you see. And God was using it. So many were gathered around him. And, and if you will, he is forming an army of sorts. They saw something in him. One, we feel safe with him. He would not hold anything about us against us because look at his life. He's the son of a prostitute and his family uh, threw him out. So therefore, no matter what I've gone through, they would say, I'm abused, I'm neglected, I'm abandoned. Jephthah will not hold it against me. And so they also probably saw in him not only safety, but leadership Character qualities. He was someone they could follow. Maybe he's someone who could give them a life's purpose. And so, at this point, God is using all these circumstances to arrange for Jephthah to have a following of potential fighting men. This is kind of what what is happening here, according to verse 3. And then the text goes on to say... After a while, the sons of Ammon came against Israel. Now, uh, you may remember this. There's a guy named Abraham, right? And he had a relative named Lot. And Lot uh, got drunk. And Lot's daughters had relations with him. See, the Bible is kind of honest, right? This is not exactly your children's bedtime story, but it's in the Bible. Take a look in the mirror. Human nature is not a pretty sight. His daughters wanted to perpetuate their memory. Father, children, no one was around. And so they got their father drunk one night and they took turns having their way with him. Well, one of the kids born through that incestuous relationship was a guy named Ammon. So the Ammonites are descendants of Ammon. They come from that incestuous relation. So... They now are getting ready to attack Israel. And so verse 5 tells us they fought against Israel, but the elders of Gilead, they went of all things, think about this, to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Remember I told you, Tob is up north, present day Syria. He just wanted to distance himself from those who threw him out of the household. He wanted nothing more to do with his family or these Elders who didn't defend him. But now, isn't this interesting? They need a leader. And they see something in Jephthah's life. They see character qualities. They see strength. They see a leader who they sorely are in need of now. There's nobody else who could lead them in defending themselves against the Ammonites. And so they go to seek him and they say, Be our leader that we may fight against the sons of Ammon. And he said to the elders government officials, you might say, of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me from my father's house? Which implies this was an orchestrated thing. The whole community was ashamed of him. It wasn't just his brothers who dumped him. It appears that the governing officials were consistent with that decision and they pushed him out also. So now Jeff is reminding them, you're coming after me. You are the ones who drove me from my father's house. Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? And the elders of Gilead said to him, 
This is why. So that you may lead us in this fight against the sons of Ammon, that you might become our head. And Jephthah said to the elders, if you take me back to fight against the sons of Ammon, and uh, the Lord gives them up to me, will I become your head? Look, look, he's not some crass, uh, carnal opportunist. He just wants to uh, check out the sincerity of their offer. The reason I know he's not some fleshly opportunist is because of this. (laughs) Uh, In Hebrews 11.32, we call that the faith honor roll. Jephthah's name is listed. Look at this. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, and the illegitimate son of an unknown prostitute made the cut. He's in the faith honor roll for crying out loud. What if his life was snuffed out while he was yet enwombed? We wouldn't have the hero of the faith, Jephthah, inscribed in the faith honor roll. So the elders of Gilead assure him, no, 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 we're not playing games. God is our witness. Yes, you will be our leader in good faith. And so the text goes on to say, well, then Jephthah, notice, went with the elders of Gilead. And the people made him head and chief over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord. Now, you have to look at this carefully because it implies something that's overwhelming. Think about it. He was an illegitimate son rejected by his own half-brothers and all the community leaders. Think about the hurt. Think about the anger. Think about all the years he had to think about it. And this phrase, he went with the elders, implies to me he won the victory over bitterness and unforgiveness. He had time, though abandoned by people, to develop intimacy with Almighty God. He saw the grace of God, and as a forgiven one, he became a forgiving one. That's how it works. He only went with them because he won victory over forgiveness. This is a tough thing. Uh, Forgiving someone who's hurt you is not something to do and be done with. It's kind of a process. And I'll bet he processed through all this hurt and pain over all these years and won the victory. How do I know that? Because he spoke all his words, look at this, before the Lord. And so he didn't forgive them for their sake. He forgave them because he had a relationship with a very forgiving God. Forgiveness wasn't about them. Forgiveness, I think he felt, was the logical, fitting response in light of the fact he would say that God has forgiven me all my sins. So that's what happens. And now we read in verse 12, Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the sons of Ammon. Here's what he said. What is between you and me that you have come to fight against me and against my land. You know what he's doing? He is offering a non-military response first to the potential conflict. That's what he's saying. Listen, he's a strong leader. He's willing to go to war if necessary, but surely not as a first resort. 
as a last resort. So through an official messenger, he first wants to query them. Why do you hate me? What, what is the basis of the hostilities? Your people against my people. And so he said, what is it between you and me? Let's get to the core issue here. Let's not kill each other. Let's get to the root cause of the enmity between us and try to resolve it non-militarily. Now he's not opting for peace at all costs. How do I know that? Because he makes no bones about it. You have come to fight against my land. He's not for one minute going to concede the fact that in his mind, he was the legitimate possessor of this disputed land. So he's not willing to give land for peace because he's not going to give away what God has given him. Now, if you think I'm getting dangerously close to today's situation in the Middle East, you is right. And uh, I cannot resist the temptation to say something about it and apply this very text. And so hang in there with me. Um, I'm going to get to it whether you like it or not. That's, that's just the way it is. You see, he wants to know, why do you hate us? What have we done to you? I think that question could be asked today of Israel's enemies. What is between you and me that you've come to fight against my land? What is it? You see, Israel is right in asking that question because since Israel came to be a reconstituted modern state in May of 1948, there have been four wars um, lodged against her by her Arab neighbors. Not one of those five wars was initiated by Israel. Not one of those five wars was lost by Israel. What is it? This is a dinky country smaller than the size of New Jersey. It has no superabundant natural resources as does Israel's Arab neighbors. The population of Israel is about 8 million, about 2 million of whom are Arab citizens of the land. Folks, there's nothing to it. You can go from the northern extent of Israel to the southern in less time than it takes you to go from here to Dallas. There's nothing to the land. What is the basis of the opposition? Especially when the quality of life of Israel's Arab citizens is far better than it ever was under any other regime. The life expectancy of Arab citizens of Israel exceeds that of any Arab country. The educational system and all the rest. Now, does this sound political? Of course it is. Once again, why is it a taboo subject to apply biblical truth even to politics? Of course it's political. If you're offended by that, then you're keeping biblical truth in a, in a box. What are you talking about? It's to overflow into every area of our life. Now listen, I know the answer to Jephthah's question. When he asks, what is it? Why do you want to kill us? What's up with this? I'm going to tell you the answer. It has nothing to do with geopolitical considerations. Nothing. It's a spiritual thing. 
And here's what I mean. The existence of Jews in this tiny sliver of land today called Israel proves a few things. One, it proves um, that God is <laughs> and that God is faithful to his word. There's no other explanation for the existence of Israel in the land today. You put six million Jews in ovens and exterminate them. They have no country of their own. How does that people group survive and end up in the land of their forefathers speaking the same language that has been spoken there for 3,000 years? It's not the wit and wisdom of the Jews. Are you kidding me? How does Israel, without an army, survive Five wars. Five wars. How did they do that? In one case, outnumbered 50 to 1. Folks, the existence of Israel in the land is not a testimony to the Israelis. It's a testimony to the faithfulness of God because he said, I'm not going to leave you or forsake you. That's what he says. No sooner will there be changes in the atmosphere than I'll change my attitude towards you. The reason why God is sustaining the Jews today is only one reason. To prove how faithful he is. And if he's faithful to his word given to the Jews. Don't you see? That's the basis of your assurance. That God's promises to you will be fulfilled in spite of you. Israel's in their promised land. By God's grace. You will gain entrance into yours. It's not real estate in the Middle East. It's heaven. But you will not gain entrance into it. Because you're good. Because you're faithful. Because you're hot. You're not. You will gain entrance into your promised land on the same basis Israel is sustained in hers. The grace of God. Satan knows this. Therefore, he must seek to exterminate the Jews. Drive them into that Mediterranean Sea, which I pointed out to you. Because if he does that, then he can prove God to be a liar. And if he lied to the Jews, why are you trusting your eternity to him? If he lied to them, he'll lie to you. Can you see what's at stake? Now there's something else. This little sliver of land was once under the total control of Muslim entities. The Quran teaches if Islam once was in control of certain land and then they forfeit it. It is a, uh, it besmirches the reputation of Muhammad and the Quran. Therefore, as a matter of honor, you must read capture land that once was under Islamic control but which has been forfeited that's true of Israel that's why the false religion of Islam which in my opinion is Satan inspired must refuse any insinuation of peace with these Jews because as long as the Jews are in the land it's a slap in the face of Muhammad the Quran and Islam. The existence of Jews in the land proves two other things. It proves the Bible is true. And it proves the Quran ain't. Can you see what's at stake? It's a spiritual conflict. So in answer to Jephthah's question, I wish I was there, I would say, Jephthah, I'll tell you the answer. This is why those people hate you. Don't take it personally. It isn't about you. It's about your God to tell you the truth. So look it. I'm going to show you what happened here. Right here. I'm getting a little hot. I got to calm down. Look at here. The king of the... Let's see what his response is to Jephthah's non-military offer. 
of peace. King of the sons of Ammon said to the messengers of Jephthah, because Israel took away my land, when they came up from Egypt, from the Arnon, as far as the Jabbok and the Jordan, therefore return them peaceably now. Okay, so a little bit of a geography lesson. Um, uh, Israel came up from Egypt in the south. They're bending around here. And they're coming up. Here's the Arnon River. And here is the Jabbok River. The Ammonites are in this area now. And it goes to the Jordan River. And the Ammonites are saying, you are in our land. This is our land. So, uh, because Jephthah knows both scripture and history, he gives an interesting response. Uh, beginning in verse 14. Um, he says to them, uh, no, Israel did not take away your land. Because when they came up from Egypt, here's what he says, I'll summarize. When they came up from Egypt, they had to go through the territory of the Edomites, the territory of the Moabites, the territory of the Ammonites, and they asked for permission to take the shortest route. Because the shortest distance between two points is what? A straight line. So they just want, they want to go here through this territory and then cross over here at Jericho into the land of, what did I do? <laughs> into the land of promise. That's kind of what they want to do. The Edomites say, not on your life. Bug off. The Moabites say the same thing. So then, uh, uh, as a result, the Jews have to take this long about route. It's telling us in this chapter, you can read for yourself. They have to go, this is called the wilderness. They can't take a straight shot. They got to bend around here. Now, when they get up somewhere around there, there's a guy named Sihon, uh, who's a, a weird dude. And uh, he's the king of, not the Ammonites, the Amorites, different people group. Sihon does not want the Jews coming near his land, he, and he attacks them militarily. And uh, he gets defeated, pretty much. And in the attack, then, uh, various tribes of Israel, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, get that territory. It was not a war of conquest. They were attacked. When you attack and you win, you have a rightful right to possess the land that you were taken. And you know what he's saying? It was never the land of the Ammonites anyway. It belonged to, to Sihon and the Amorites. That's kind of what he's saying. So he's saying to the Ammonites, you ne it was never your land anyway. And you attacked us. Listen here. Israel, some of Israel's land, the Golan Heights, West Bank, and at one time the Sinai Peninsula was taken by Israel after they won victory in one of these attacks by multiple Arab nations. Now people want them to give it back. It's called going back to the 1967 borders. That would mean Israel at one point uh, from east to west is nine miles. Indefensible. Now uh, a lot of... Uh, Liberal Americans are crying for Israel to, and goofball politicians putting on pressure on Israel to give back this land. Israel did already gave back the Sinai Peninsula to Egypt. But if they give back the Golan Heights, um, that's a high ground. I was in the army 
and the military for 17 years, you want to take the high ground. When you get the high ground, man, you don't want to give it up. And so uh, there's pressure put on Israel to do that. And I would just like to say that, if that's how you feel. When we give back Texas, uh, New Mexico, Arizona, and California to Mexico, then we could point the finger at Israel. So it goes both ways, my fellow Americans. Now, we're not going to do that. It's an insane thing. Well, then don't put that pressure on Israel. Land for peace is a mistake. Listen, when you give away what God has given you, he'll never bless you for it. So land for peace is a foolish kind of experiment. Anyway, so that's what he's throwing at the Ammonites. This is his, his argument. He's saying it was never your land. And so in verse 22... Look what he says. So they possessed all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok and from the wilderness as far as the Jordan. And I'll pick up the pace. Since now the Lord, the God of Israel, look, the God of Israel is the one who drove out the Amorites from before his people Israel. Are you then to possess it? What a good argument. If sovereign God gave this to us, who are you to lay claim to it? Now look, when you say, what right does Israel have to the land? (laughs) If God bequeathed it to them, and if you don't think he did, you're not a very good Bible student. It isn't Israel's land, it's God's, and therefore he has the right to give possession of it to anyone he wants. Again... If you don't think God unconditionally gave the land to Israel, I guess you skipped over all of the Old Testament for crying out loud because it quite clearly stipulates that. Jephthah's argument to the Ammonites is, (laughs) if God gave it, what right do you have to think you can take it? That's essentially what he is saying there. And so in verse 24, look what he says. A little Jewish sarcasm here. Do you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you? It's a slam. He's saying, our God has given us this land. We won victory by his grace. We got a major portion of the land of promise while under attack. God gave us the victory through which he gave us possession of this land. Our God reigns. But if you want to continue to worship your Chemosh, then you'll have to just be satisfied with what he gives you. Apparently, your God, Chemosh, is much more stingy than our God is. That's essentially what he's saying. And if you're jealous of what our God has given us, why don't you give up your God and worship ours? That's essentially what the what the argument here is. And so uh, the text continues here to verse 25. And it says, while Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages and all these places uh, 300 years, why did you not recover them? Now look at here. Here's the argument. We lived there for 300 years. Nobody laid claim to the land. All of a sudden you're laying claim to it? Now, let me tell you the modern-day application of this, it seems to me. Um, Do you know that for over 3,300 years, 
the Jews have had a continuous presence in the land of Israel for 3,300 years. See the argument of longevity? We've been here for 300 years. You never challenged us all of a sudden. Why, do you, why are you coming against us? Well, the Jews have been in the land of Israel for 3,300 years. Do you know for the same amount of time, just about, Jerusalem has been its Jewish capital? This is not a new thing. For over 3,000 years. Do you know Jerusalem never in history was the capital of any Arab or Muslim group? Do you know Jerusalem is not even mentioned one time in the Quran, but it is mentioned over 700 times in the Bible? Do you know why, when Jerusalem was under Jordanian control until Israel took control in 1948, do you know no major Arab or Muslim leader ever visited Jerusalem? It's only since it became Israel's restored capital in 1948 that Muslim interests said, we can't have this. It's a slam, as I mentioned to you. It's an insult to Muhammad. Therefore, we got to get Jerusalem. Well, man, for 3,000 years, you had no interest in it. It's the same argument as what Jephthah has advanced in the book of Judges. And then he goes on to say in verse 27... I therefore have not sinned against you. You're doing me wrong. Now, I'm not saying for one minute that my people are sinless. Are you kidding? I'm not saying that the secular state of Israel is above board and without blame. I'm not saying that at all. On the other hand, things are disproportionate there. Israel has never attacked its neighbors. Its neighbors have attacked Israel Five times. Israel does not, as part of its curriculum, teach its little kids to hate Arabs or Jews. If you're an Arab citizen of Israel, you have access to the same hospitals, the same schools, the same workplace as anybody. If you're an Arab citizen of Israel, you can run to elected office. In their Knesset, which is the equivalent of our Congress, there is a rapidly anti-Israel Arab party who are duly elected by their constituency and their vote counts as much as anyone else. Please show me one Muslim-dominated country where a Jew like me ever could have citizenship rights and exist. Under the proposed Palestinian charter today, uh, one of the requirements is that they have a Jew-free state. All of Palestine is to be Jew-free. If Israel made that statement, all of Israel is to be Arab-free or Muslim-free. Every one of the people in the debate tonight would be up in arms. <laughs> They'd be going out of their mind. Whoever heard of such a racist statement? But that's not true in Israel. If you go to Israel, and some of us will be going in April, you will see freedom of religion that rivals ours. Mosques, temples, synagogues, every religious expression known to humankind. So Jephthah's argument exists today. I haven't sinned against you. You are doing war by, uh, uh, you are doing wrong by making war against me. And then it goes on in verse 28 to say this. Look at this. The king of the sons of Ammon disregarded the message. Look, in, uh, 2000, the then prime minister of Israel, Ehud Barak, met at Camp David with Yasser Arafat, 
who's deceased now. He was then the leader of the PLO, Palestine Liberation Organization. A peace proposal was made, including the giving by Israel of 92% of the West Bank. The West Bank is ancient Judea and Samaria. Israel offered to give up 92% of it. In addition, Israel offered to give up the Gaza Strip and uh, lots of money. Arafat rejected it. Then President Clinton decided to sweeten the offer, suggesting that the Palestinians control not 92% of the West Bank, but 97%. And the entirety of the Gaza Strip with a land link between the two and a capital in East Jerusalem. The Israeli Prime Minister accepted it. Again, the Palestinians rejected it. After having rejected that peace offer at Camp David, no counter offers were offered by the Palestinians at all, and Arafat started what's called the Second Intifada, which means uprising in Arabic, killing more than 1,500 Israelis between 2000 and 2005. That was their response to a peace offer. In 2005, Israel, to show good faith, withdrew entirely from the Gaza Strip, dragging its citizens out, kicking and screaming, to turn it over to the Palestinians, who then in 2007 chose as their government a terror group called Hamas. Down to this very day, not only is there not peace, they build tunnels, they fire missiles, they send incendiary balloons right now into areas we've gone to serve in. No peace whatsoever. In 2008, the Prime Minister of Israel at that time then offered the Palestinian Authority, their new leader, Mahmoud Abbas, their present leader, 93.7% of the West Bank. And an international fund consisting of billions of dollars. And that offer, that peace offer, was rejected by Abbas. Then the government of Israel, under Netanyahu agreed to an unprecedented 10-month freeze in settlement construction in 2009, and the Palestinians rejected that offer, refusing to recognize the right of Israel to exist. Listen, you know what Israel's precondition is for peace? Just recognize our right to exist. That's it. Well, they rejected that offer. When President Obama proposed, made a peace offer proposal in 2013, the Netanyahu government accepted it, and once again, the Palestinians rejected it. And in recent days, President Trump offered a well-thought-out peace plan, uh, increasing Palestinian territory, doubling it, offering an international aid fund of $50 billion, a capital in East Jerusalem, and all the rest. And it too has been rejected. As someone has said, the Palestinian leadership never misses an opportunity to miss an opportunity. Why? For the reasons I told you. They can't make Peace with Israel because the existence of Israel reminds them that the Quran 
is false. Islam is false. The Bible is true. The God of Israel keeps his word. The existence of Israel, rebellious Israel, reveals not only the sinfulness of humankind, but the superabundant grace of Almighty God and Satan who is jealous of all things rightfully belonging to God, wants to wipe out any evidence of God's faithfulness. That's why, folks, I'm not pessimistic, just realistic, there will be no peace in the Middle East until the Prince of Peace returns to take control. And buckle up, it may be soon. Buckle up, Jesus is on his way. Well, now here's what happened. I'll go fast, I promise. Verse 29 tells us the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. He went through the land building up his army. And then a terrible thing happens in verse 30. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. That's what he said. And he said, if, oh no, if you will give the sons of Ammon into my hand, you don't need to do that. God specifically raised up, preserved, and groomed Jephthah to be the savior of Israel. The victory over the Ammonites had nothing to do with Jephthah and the Israelites. It's for God's glory. You don't have to bargain with our gracious father to do good things. Our gracious father on his own initiative promises to do good things. You don't make this deal with almighty God. And here's the vow. If you do this, God, if you give us this victory, he says, whatever, not whoever, (coughs) Whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return, it'll be the Lord's. I'll offer it up as a burnt offering. So then Jephthah crosses over and beats up on the Ammonites. God gives a great victory. and They are enabled to take 20 cities and the sons of Ammon are subdued before the sons of Israel. Jephthah remembers his vow. He comes home. He's ready to fulfill it. Whatever comes out of his house first, maybe he thought it would be an animal. Who knows? He's going to offer to God. Something terrible happens. When Jephthah comes to his house, his daughter comes out. She's rejoicing. She's playing a tambourine. She's dancing. Look at the marvelous victory God gave Israel through her father. She, the text says, were his only child. That's it. No other sons or daughters. When he saw her, therefore, he tore his clothes. He said, oh, no, my daughter, you brought me very low, is what he said. I'm troubled now. I've given my word to the Lord. I cannot take it back. That was a day when people, I guess, believed their word was their bond. They didn't need people witnessing it. And if you made a vow to God, you had to keep it. In fact, no vows are required by God of us. But if you make one, you got to keep it. And so it says in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, Look, when you make a vow to God, don't be late in paying for it. For he takes no delight in fools. You know what a fool is? I swear by the lives of my children. That's a fool. I swear by my my mother's grave. Have you heard these things? That's a fool. God's not asking you to make stupid statements like that. He's asking you to throw yourself on his goodness and grace. You don't have to coerce him with those ridiculous vows. But if you do... Don't be late in paying for it. He takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow 
than that you should vow and not pay. So he's bound. And the daughter knows he is as well. She says, my father, you've given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said. Only she said, let this be done. Give me two months to go alone to the mountains and weep because of my virginity. Single woman, never had a man, won't bear children. He said, absolutely go. She does for two months with her companions and they lament the fact that she is a virgin and will never bear children because of his vow. At the end of two months, she returns, having had no relations, the text says, with a man. And uh, this is commemorated in Israel down to this very day. Listen, Jephthah made a foolish bargain with God. If you do this, I will do that. Don't do that. Instead, study scripture. See the promises of God. Take him at his word. You know what Jephthah could have said? Oh, God, upon the victory, I promise to give you the credit and glory when I get back. I'll offer a burnt offering, uh, a thanks offering to you. But to make this rash vow, you know, my, my, my offering is contingent on you doing for me what I want you to do when God already stipulate, stipulated he's going to restore Israel and give the victory. Here's the principle, folks. Be careful about what you say to God because he takes it seriously. Do not make promises to God. You do not intend to keep. God takes our words seriously. Now, uh, did Jephthah actually have his daughter killed? Now, very good and godly people throughout the centuries differ on this. So I just offer my opinion. I do not think he did. I think that's a misunderstanding of the text. You see, she's lamenting her virginity and that she didn't have relations with a man. I think what he did is sought to it that she would be forever devoted to the service of the Lord at the tabernacle or temple and stay celibate for the rest of her life. I mean, human sacrifice in Israel was repulsive at this time. God's law um, militated against it. And this statement in verse 39, at the end of two months, she returned to her father who did to her according to the vow which he had made and she had no relations with a man. That tells me, no, not that she was killed, offered in human sacrifice, which would never have been acceptable to God, but that now she was devoted to a life of service and would not ever marry and bear children. Folks, in closing, and I should have done it a little while ago, but we're okay. The only human sacrifice ever that was acceptable, ordained, and pleasing to God, you know what I'm talking about, was the sacrifice of his only begotten son. That's the only time. Don't make offers to God. Don't sacrifice yourself. It's not adequate. But what Jesus did is adequate. You know what we're seeing in Judges? Sin, sin, sin. Everyone doing what's right in his or her own mind. But for those of us, all of us who have sinned against God in thought, word, and deed, he has been pleased to accept the atoning sacrifice of his own and fleshed son, Jesus, in order to cover up for all of our sins. You know what we're seeing in Judges? Even the best of these little deliverers is not so hot. 
It makes you cry out for a real deliverer, a real savior who's perfect, who's holy, who does not die, who rule and reign in our hearts, whose throne is based on grace and mercy and holiness. All this that we're reading anticipates the coming of Jesus. And folks, do not put your hope even in the best of men, pastor, politician, or other. Put your hope in Jesus, only in Jesus. He's the Savior who will never let us down. And it's his atoning sacrifice. That's the only sacrifice for sin ever accepted in the eyes of the Father. What a crazy day we live in. If you watch too much news, you're going to get really, really bothered by it all. Run only to Jesus. He is enthroned. And just as he was sovereign in the life of one Jephthah through thick and thin, he's sovereign over every ruler of the world, every political party in the world, every country of the world, and even through the evil decisions of those enthroned on human thrones today, God can work out his grand and glorious plan of redemption. Don't make deals with God. Say, Father, I take you up on your word. There's victory in Jesus. I lay claim to it because I'm in Jesus as a son or daughter of his. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We'll give you. Here's what you say. We'll praise you forever. Don't try to twist God's arm by making deals with him. Give him the glory for being gracious in spite of us. Though we be rebellious just like Israel. He's a God bent on restoration. He's a God whose grace is greater than all our sin. He's a God who remains faithful though we be unfaithful. I'm not making promises to God that I cannot keep. I'm just thanking God for being faithful to me in spite of my unfaithfulness. I'm just thanking God. For his superabundant promises. You know what he told me? The best is yet to come. He told me Jesus is coming again. I believe that because every promise up until this point, he's kept it. He told me one day we will be in the presence of the King of Kings, the perfect Savior forevermore. And he says nothing will ever... You know what he says? Nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. You know what he says? I've cast all your sin behind my back. You know what he says? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. You know what he says? There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. I'm not making deals with God. I just want to take him up on all of those promises. And if I offer anything, it'll be thanksgiving offerings, not payment for grace, because then grace would not be, wouldn't be grace. I hope you're enveloped by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a savior not just from sin, but from hopelessness. There is no hope. Only in Jesus, the God of hope, is there hope. This is not a religious thing. This is not a political thing. Good night. This is an essential thing. How could it be that you could have an abundant life here, an eternal life to come, apart from the giver of life? This is just common sense. Run to Jesus. Only to Jesus. That's what we're, we're going to do, Lord Jesus. Yes, yes, yes. That's what we're going to do. With more passion, devotion, and wholeheartedness in these troubling days than ever before. We will not be enveloped by cynicism and pessimism. We will look to you, our Savior and Deliverer. We will acknowledge you to be sovereign even through the difficult throes of life. 
We will look to you to be glorified because you say, I will not give my glory to another. And we look to you to save us to the uttermost because that too is your promise. And if we need evidence to back up your faithfulness, all we have to do is look to Israel. If you kept your word to them, how much more will you keep your word to us, we who are part of the new covenant of grace? And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.